0: This is episode number 69 with Rob Gray. Rob is currently an experimental psychologist, sports scientist, driving researcher, and training consultant at Arizona State University. In this episode, he talks a little bit about kind of the best ways to train and to practice, um, the difference between developing a skill and a habit, and we just get into a little bit of different topics of, of what we see from kids' training and how coaches coach, And if that's really valuable to them or if it's not, we talk a little bit about actually how they practice in Japan and if that you could apply that to here in the United States. Um, Very, very interesting stuff. If you guys haven't already, please make sure to head on over to iTunes and rate and leave a review. I would greatly uh, be honored if you would do that, and that would just be awesome. It helps a ton, it helps the overall rating of the show. Um, So please go over and do that right after this episode. And without further ado, here is Rob Gray. We are now live with Rob Gray, who is the host of the Perception and Action podcast. Rob, really appreciate you coming on today.
1: Oh, thank you. Pleasure to be here, Patrick.
0: So, I kind of like to just start out, and if you could possibly give the listeners a little bit of your background, um, that would be fantastic.
1: Yeah, so I am, uh, I'm currently a, a faculty member at Arizona State University. Um, I started, I'm from Canada originally. I did uh, all my graduate school in kind of an Ontario, Toronto area. Um, I did a PhD in, in psychology, kind of experimental psychology, where I just a lot on vision and performance kind of basic aspects of, of perception And then I, I kind of turned my eye to more doing more applied stuff and so for a while. I worked for uh, Nissan the car company doing research on kind of vision and safety and then I, I kind of got more interested in sports kind of topics and and I've uh, I did you know I've been in a sports science department in, in France and in Marseille and in England in University of Birmingham and then came back to Arizona State. So um, I do a variety of kind of research on sports related topics, you know, handling pressure, virtual reality, kind of skill acquisition and, and, and those kind of things.
0: What have you learned um, overall from like dealing with sports?
1: Um, I, don't, I think, you know, I've really, sports is a great, I kind of use it two ways. I, it's a great way to just understand kind of the Basics of perception and cognition and and how we behave because it's a it's a situation where we're really pushing things to the absolute max right where you know the times are so short and the margins for error so I think it's a great place to study how hum just general human behavior. And then you know the application side of it, trying to take your research and, and and take it into application. And I guess you know I've learned, I've you know I've changed my view about things over the years, but I've learned kind of making that connection from research into practice is is very challenging one. And you know you really have to get in there and, and talk to people and try it and and do things. Uh, that that's probably the biggest thing I've learned.
0: Yeah, I mean I feel like you're such a a valuable tool for coaches and players because everyone's trying to get that extra edge and kind of bridge that gap and you know like time is such an important factor in just everything that we do so that you know always coaches are trying to you know what can I do to implement um, a better practice plan or from a player's perspective what what should I work on should I just continue to just hit balls off a tee over and over again hopefully you know I get better um I'm sure you've heard of the the um, example of it takes ten thousand hours to like master a skill. I think that is—is is that a true fact or false?
1: Yeah, I think you know there. There's two parts to that. So that the, that comes from a theory uh, by Anders Ericsson called deliberate practice theory, um, which at its core, I think, has some good ideas. Right, deliberate practice idea is the idea that to get better. You need to like deliberately work on things, you know, identify things you need to improve at and work on those. Not just go out there and play around and mess around. Um, and that idea, uh, I think, is at core. The ten thousand hour rule is kind of a a number that actually an author that most people probably know, Malcolm Gladwell, came up with after looking at Anders' work and. That does not hold up, that that's some magic number where you transition from good to, obviously, you just think about it logically, it doesn't hold up. So um, there's no magic number of hours that you need to accumulate. Obviously, it's a lot in most cases, but um, so I, I, I wouldn't. That 10,000-hour rule, yeah, I wouldn't hold too much. Okay, made-up made up up number, made-up number. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something there's – some, you got it from somewhere, but it, it doesn't really hold water.
0: <laughs> what did you think of uh, Daniel Coyle's book, The Talent Code?
1: I haven't looked at that one too much, um, actually. Uh, um, so I don't know. I, I, that's on my list, <laughs> reading list, to be honest, yeah.
0: Have you studied the um, – um, what is it? Uh, the, the soccer players I know were in, in Brazil, and they kind of – um essentially the skill I guess they they had like a, a slow practice I guess is what they call it and they would be in, in like a really small room mm-hmm. and they would obviously have to pass each other the ball like more times than normal and they would that's how they would develop I guess their footwork and and so once they got out to a bigger field um, their skills were so much more developed because of being in that small room and he gave a bunch of different e- examples um, and then they brought up, you know, myelin and how that's an important role in developing a skill. Um, what do you think about myelin and developing the skill in that matter?
1: Yeah. So, so the kind of the first part you were talking about I th- is an excellent example of something a lot of coaches I think are getting interested in is that what's commonly called the constraints led approach. So, taking uh, you know practice and deliberately manipulating putting some constraint on the athlete, like the size of the field or the number of players in baseball. You can do it in terms of the speed of the ball, you know, you know, the hitting area, um, to kind of force them to develop their skill and, 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 you know, become, you know, learn a particular aspect of the skill. The idea is rather than teaching them how to make passes, let's actually force it, Let's actually let them learn themselves. Um, and by get, putting them in this situation where they're really constrained and have to kind of it forces them to do this So I think that's a great example and kind of yeah the myelin, you know I, I guess that they were the meaning referring to the connections you develop in the brain um, as you kind of learn these things and and you begin to pick up You know the, what information tells me when a pass will be successful or, or not that kind of
0: thing yeah. So do you think that because I mean in baseball for example it's such a routine game. You do the exact same thing every single day. You get to the park. You hit off the tee. A lot of times, you'll use front toss. Then you'll hit BP, forty-five mile an hour batting practice. Do you really get better by doing the same thing every single day?
1: <laughs> I, I I really don't believe so so at all. You know, I think baseball is one of the worst examples of a sport where a practice is a million times the easier. Than then the game it's you know, pit batting practice hitting off a tee It's so you're you know It's so much different than what you're actually going to do in the game You know, I don't know what value a lot of that has at all really so I, I'm a big believer in variability in practice. So changing up the conditions, you know, making people better able to adapt to different situations Rather than just doing the same thing over and over again. I know that's easy and that's the way we typically do it. But I think people are starting to change their mind about some of these things. Yeah.
0: I think that in baseball, it's such a – it's a game of, well, this is how we've always done it. Mm -hmm. And instead of – like you're talking about you know adding some variability in there to, to change it up a little bit to make to make you better, and it, and there's so many baseball players out there listening, I mean, heck, I was one. It's so mental, and there's so many guys who it's about feeling good so much. Um, do you see that have you seen that at all? when a lot when you talk to, I guess coaches and players like, "Well, this is how we've always done it, and you know the, the guys feel good, so I mean, we have to keep doing it.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think there is, uh, you know, there's a few few points mixed up in there. I definitely see that attitude. At the same time, baseball is getting a lot better, you know, kind of with we get more analytics. I know teams I work with are getting way more uh, progressive in terms of practice design and things. Um, Yeah. Feeling good is, you know, there's there's a few points there. One is, you know, you have to kind of convince people that learning and, and getting better. Something's messy right? It requires you to look bad. It requires you to look bad sometimes. And sometimes really good athletes don't want to do that, especially in front of, you know, they don't want to put them in a situation where they're going to miss the ball a bunch of times because you've made the, the pitching conditions really hard. So kind of convincing your your, your athletes that that's okay and that's part of your know, environment is, is definitely part of it as well. And then I think you have to think about what's the purpose of practice, right? Sometimes practice is Just to make the purpose of practice should be be able to make them feel good and confident and ready for the game. You know, right when you're close to a game, you don't want to be changing things, a variable and making people struggle. Probably you want to make them feel confident when they leave. So you have to think about when you're doing these kind of manipulations, too.
0: Let me take you back to when you were talking about uh, working with some major league baseball organizations and some things of of just other teams in baseball. What are they looking to do or what are they trying to do in practice to make it more valuable?
1: Um, I think there's, you know, there's a few things I think, uh, you know, understand uh, teams are starting to want to, you know, are we getting the most out of our practice design You know, is we have, we've been doing infield drills this way forever. You know, could we, you know, is there ways that we might do it better? So sometimes that what I've done is just gone and observe and kind of make suggestions. And then, and then also kind of the, the, you know, the transfer representative practice kind of ideas is what we're doing here. You know, if we want to work on pitch recognition, for example, and we're just going to have a batter stand there and call out you know say st- fastball curveball is that actually going to transfer to actual p- improved performance so so they kind of think starting to think more about you know are these drills actually going to do anything <laughs> rather right. than just trying everything and saying oh it can't hurt right so uh, that's a, that's still a hard sell to get people to change that attitude though it definitely is. well
0: actually in Japan um contrary to what happens in the United States they actually will have a a pitcher um, and actually pitch like fastballs, curveballs, change-ups, everything full speed there before a game versus in the United States before a game batting practice, they'll go throw 45-mile RBP, just cock shots right down the middle and crush them. Does that that sounds like Japan has, has a little bit of a better way of doing it than uh, than we do over here.
1: Yeah, I, definitely. I, I really question you the know, value of, of traditional – the way we do it over here batting practices. You know, um again maybe it makes people feel comfortable but and they say get your timing down but you're timing up a pitch that's half the speed of of what it's really going to be i don't see how that that's useful but um yeah i definitely think and i i could see a day where you know there's going to be teams hiring you know arms keeping arms on the roster to throw batting practice rather than you know some some coach that can only get it up there's you know 50 miles an hour or something so yeah I i definitely see that coming eventually
0: um, the prefrontal cortex has to do with decision-making, and in baseball that is such a big deal because of of reaction time and you just have so little time to make a decision on whether you should swing or take. Heck, that was my problem. That's why my career was over. I swung at everything half the time. <laughs> it says that, I, from what I've read, it, it's not that's not developed, your prefrontal cortex, until age 25. So how are some guys able to have better plate discipline than others before then, if it's not fully developed until that age?
1: Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, you know, I'm, I'm a really big believer in, in kind of, you know, sports specific practice. So rather than people having a general decision making ability that it's, you know, it's really specific to the sport they're going. So I don't know. Yeah. That's a really good question where people pick up that skill, you know, of, you know, pitch recognition and how, um, I, I don't really, I don't know if I have a good answer of, of why some people do or don't. Uh, there's definitely a, a lot of evidence showing that you can train that skill and, uh, you know, with anticipation training. So I don't know if they people, some people had to, you know, coach or a parent that for, you know, got them to do that kind of thing early on. But, um, yeah, no, I think that that's an interesting question. And um yeah I don't I don't know I, we don't really have any good longitudinal studies to see where these kind of things occur
0: Sure that w- that was just a selfish question for myself <laughs> No problem <laughs> Um have you ever had anyone ask you or have you ever done any research on the yips or do you know what the yips are
1: Yeah definitely so I've done so I've done a lot of research on on pressure choking under pressure the effects of pressure and, and baseball and uh looked at how and golf And looked at how it changes the um, kind of mechanics of the swing, where people look, all these various effects. And the yips seems to fall into its own special category um, of a kind of extreme version of that. And, you know, obviously there's a golfing example in baseball. Usually it happens to, you know, the infielders trying to make a throw where there's actually this extreme you know, m- muscle effect, you can measure. So um, I've, I haven't really done any, you know, it's it's a hard thing to study because it's not something you can induce in, in a, an experiment. And it's not, not a lot of people that are affected by the true yip. So, um, but I try to understand it as a really extreme version of kind of pressure effects.
0: Yeah. Do you think that, would you put those people into a category where they're, I don't want to say mentally, like maybe a little bit, weak, but mentally weak.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I guess, I don't know if I put it, um, you know, the, the people that I say that are affected by pressure, it's, yeah, I don't know if weak or it's just kind of, they, you know, have a propensity to do things different ways, kind of analyze what they're doing and, and try to monitor them themselves, uh, under pressure. So I guess you could call that a, that a weakness in a way, but it's really, um, just kind of a different, Uh, Focus. uh, You know, some people are better at kind of keeping their attention away from what they're doing and keeping it out on the field instead of trying to think about what the mechanics of what they're doing. So um, it just seems to be a a tendency people have one way or the other. Yeah,
0: you see that some guys under pressure um, they always choke. I mean, there's certain teams that always choke. There's certain players that always choke. Can you get better at handling just pressure in a in a um, in a really game time situation where everything's on the line
1: yeah it it is a really that's a really tricky thing definitely there's you know there's i think it really depends there's a lot of you know in in the research we found a lot of interventions that can work Kind of you know, at the level we study it, we're like, well obviously we can't recreate the pressure of a, you know game seven of the World Series in a, in a lab, but you know some of the interventions we use is getting people used to being observed and evaluated in practice. Um there's some interesting research where if you get people to kind of reevaluate the the kind of stress they're feeling, as you know that can affect. but, So I think it really depends Uh, the people that I've worked with kind of it really some people I can see some some progress and it works and other people doesn't seem anything you try uh, works. I think it also depends on how catastrophic of a failure they've had if they've had something really bad happen and that that really sticks and it's hard to, to get rid of it. Definitely.
0: Have you ever looked into meditation and that helping some people under pressure?
1: Yeah, I've looked at a little bit of the kind of relaxation and, and meditation and and I, I kind of actually have a bit of a different view of that is, you know, I see, you know, those feelings that you have when you get in, you're stressed, you know, your heart rate goes up, you start to sweat and all that stuff. I see that as actually valuable if you harness it the right way, right? We know from, from performance research that you perform best when you're actually moderately anxious. If you're, if you're too low anxiety, you don't actually perform well.
0: Agree, 100% agree. So
1: yeah, so I don't want to totally get rid of those things. I just want you to kind of reinterpret them as, you know, all right, I'm, I'm feeling this way because I'm challenged, not threatened kind of is what, so, so I, I I kind of have a different approach than trying to mask all these, these physiological symptoms you're getting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. I do remember there was a time last year when I was playing where I wasn't worried. So I was worried that I wasn't worried.
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally. And I'm, I'm, uh, when I was my sport was ice hockey from from Canada and when I at the end of my career I used to have trouble in the tryouts actually for teams because I would be like I can't be bothered <laughs> it couldn't get you know games were fine but I couldn't get you know motivated enough to right. try it yeah so. what
0: about a uh, confidence that's such a huge thing for for not just baseball, but for sports in general. And you, and you kind of hear a lot of athletes, I guess, high level athletes preach, you know, preparation helps, helps confidence a ton. Um, do you think that applies?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, you can't overstate the, you know, confidence and self-efficacy, how, you know, how well you believe that you can handle the situation. And yeah, I do think that comes through, you know, your training, you know, uh, you know, I don't, you know, a, a saying that I heard, you know, someone I like that people brought up in the in the World Cup uh, recently is, you know, under pressure you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of your training, right? So you don't elevate yourself to this high level, you you're going to fall as far as your, you know, if you're prepared and you you have a routine and you know you've done you practice under similar conditions. Then you're going to be able to handle it, and that gives you confidence. I think definitely.
0: So confidence, hundred percent preparation. That's that's what he, that's what the two are aligned with. Yeah,
1: I think so. I think in baseball, for example, I think good batters don't just they walk up there with an idea of what they're going to do. You know, they have a routine about you know when they get in the box, and that all kind of brings some confidence. Definitely.
0: I was listening to one of your podcasts. I forget which number it was when you were talking about intent and. Mm-hmm. You were talking, and that's such a huge thing in baseball now. You know, intent – I even tell my guys, you know, intent – you know, what's your intent? Are you up there just swinging just to swing or are you – do you have an intent to do damage when you're at the plate or intent to throw hard on the mound? And you kind of broke it down a little bit, which is pretty cool. And um, could you give everyone a little bit of like background on, on what you kind of found when studying like intent?
1: Yeah. So I think it also falls kind of in with – um this the deliberate practice idea in a way that you know you need when you're training you need to have an intention for what uh, you know what is I'm trying to achieve here what's my goal you know instead of just walking up and hitting a whole bunch of balls and in batting practice what exactly am I trying to work on and improve and stuff so yeah and I, I think there's a couple of things you know the the there's lots of research showing that when We learning a skill and we intend, you know, with the intention of doing uh, being evaluated or performing it later, it totally changes the way we learn it. Um, So I think that's something and there's also kind of falling in line with um, the the, um, constraints approach. There's kind of this thing called education of intention where you kind of. Uh, you know, you, you, what you intend to do in terms of your action totally changes the way you kind of see the world and the things you pick up. So, yeah, I definitely believe you need to have a plan of what you're going to work on in each practice. You know, there's like there could be practice sessions that are just fun and messing around, too. But ones that are designed for improvement, you need to have clear intention and then also reflective practice at the, at the end. You know, what did you how, how did we get to what we were tra- aiming at and that kind of thing? Yeah.
0: How do you develop a skill?
1: That's a good, good, good question. <laughs> um, there's there's, there's kind of two schools of thought. You know, the very traditional thought is you go out and you look at an expert, right? You go look at Mike Trout and say, okay, there's the way he swings. Uh, let's copy that exactly, right? So here's what you're supposed to do with when you swing. Here's how you should move your hips, your legs. Uh, so, and as a coach, you you stand in front of your athlete. Nope, you're not doing that right, and you re- do what's called repetition, right? You're going to repeat Mike Trout swing over and over and over again until it's drilled into you, and it's you've learned the one ideal baseball swing. And that's kind of the really old, kind of older traditional view of skill acquisition. That most of us, I, that's the way I was taught, kind of thing. The the more recent view that a lot of people are getting excited about is kind of what's often called the ecological um, is the idea of self-organization. So the idea there is that there's no one ideal swing. There's one uh, optimal swing for you based on your you know your body, your 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 swing velocity you can generate, your reaction time. So the idea is to put you under kind of variable practice conditions and use constraints so you can find the swing that works for you. Um, so you can what do what we call self-organize. Um, so those are two, there's people on, still on both sides of those debates. Um, I myself tend, in most cases, tend to like the latter, the self-organization. I think it just makes a lot of sense to me.
0: And you've done the research on that. It's not like you're just pulling that out of thin air.
1: Yeah, uh, so I've done some studies recently. I'm starting to compare. So I did a recent study that I have coming out soon where I looked at um, trying to get batters to increase launch angle, so to hit more fly balls, balls in the air, and I uh, compared kind of uh, constraints where I just you know, gave them basically what a lot of teams are doing this already. You put kind of a fence on the field and you try to hit over it versus telling them this is how you should swing to hit it more in the air. And the, the constraints and kind of letting them figure it out on their own did seem to work better so like case. an ex-
0: external go external goal versus something internal
1: exactly yeah exactly that's another part of it too so keeping you away from overly focusing on your the mechanics um you see so many yeah you know, i see so many kids in, in a lot of sports are so inside their head with oh, yeah. the mechanics and and um you know um one drill i've seen that's really uh, a fun one to do is you know if people are struggling you uh, we can like tennis you you make them hold the racket by the wrong end and you say after i serve the ball at you you have to flip it into the right way around then swing and you see immediate improvement because you, you you take away all the chance for them to think about the mechanics and things like that so oh, you could
0: do that with um, baseball i'm sure too. yeah
1: yeah yeah definitely i've seen people do that as well so yeah i think people where we have this t- tendency to get too focused on technique and mechanics and and things and that that can be detrimental definitely
0: um what i do sometimes with with my players and let me know if this is this is correct or if i'm on the right path or not is if i'm trying to make a change in their swing or if i'm trying to i guess what i kind of tell them i want them to to learn the, the correct movement pattern or something like that i'll take away the bat and i'll I'll give them like a PVC pipe and I'll go through, we'll do some different movement drills. And the reason why I've done that is because, and again, tell me if I'm wrong, but the way your central nervous system works and deals with, you know, movement and and everything like that, your brain is so is wired in a way where once you pick up that bat, it's going to continue to do the same thing over and over again. And so giving you a different object is kind of like fooling your brain a little bit. Is that correct or no?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple things there that you, um, you know, I think a big thing that I think we overlook in a lot of sports and in baseball is one of them is kind of body awareness, kind of being aware of what your body's doing, uh, you know, while you're swinging and kind of the feel part of it. And so I, I think when, you're right when you use the same thing over and over again, you lose that kind of you stop focusing on that. And I think you know the PVZ pipe and other things. I think. From what I understand, I think what those are achieving is is kind of, you know, almost error augmentation. So if you have kind of a hitch in your swing or, you know, or, you know, a good swing, it's kind of enhancing a certain something you would never feel with a baseball bat. So I, I do I do think those those can be really useful. Um, ways to get people to feel and experience. Okay, this is what happens when you you rotate this way. It's gonna feel because you're right. You can't always do it with with a baseball bat. Are definitely. you
0: a pretty big baseball fan? You sound like you know a pretty pretty good amount. Of, about uh, yeah,
1: I I, I am. I'm pretty uh um. I, I follow it pretty regularly. I didn't play too much. It wasn't a big sport in Canada when I was a kid. I didn't. I did softball when I was older. Are you a but.
0: Joey Votto fan then?
1: I do. I'm uh yeah, I do uh really like uh watching him. I think he's he's and also kind of as as being such a student of the game as a as a researcher, I really appreciate, you know, hearing what he has to say about hitting and things. I think it's re- it's really cool.
0: Yeah, I live in Cincinnati, so I've been I've been oh, okay. following him for a while.
1: Yeah, as a Canadian, I'm obliged to <laughs> like yeah, but no, he is really I really like people that are kind of analytical about about what they do.
0: So I'm curious what how would you go through a, a typical day, I guess, say you're a hitter, for example, and we talked about how you wouldn't want to do you, so much in baseball as a monotonous, repetitive thing where, you know, you get there to get to the ballpark, you stretch, you warm up, you hit off the tee, I'll give you some soft toss, then we'll throw batting practice. What would you do?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, baseball is a tough one because, you know, you're playing so often yeah, and like, in, yeah, it's hard to in other sports, I you know, and, and I try to I think and this is something I think we're really the idea of periodizing skill acquisition and training. So just like we do, we periodize physical training, strength training. So the idea that, you know, certain parts of the season we want to work on skill acquisition, um, you know, and maybe baseball in the off season players do this or spring training. Where you know and pitchers do this already, you know, you work on certain pitches You really don't care about the outcomes at all You're just working on things and then as you move closer to competition So at that with that stage of training you want lots of variability You want to identify certain things that you need to work on and then um, You know really kind of get messy and then as you get closer to competition Start to get more kind of block practice low variability giving you that confidence we talked about and, and things like that so How to implement that in a baseball season is a bit more challenging, right? Because you don't have as much time off, uh, you know, but so I I think, you know, I'd like to see that somehow incorporated in it in, in, you know, practice, whether it's just within a small session, you know, having a more variable part to it and moving towards more uh low variability within the same session but i think it's something we need to think about and, and understand the best way to do it still
0: yeah yeah i definitely I agree and I, I like the way you kind of said that where in the off season let's add you know a little bit harder drills and everything like that and then leading up to competition uh tone it down a little bit what do you think about reps because there's some guys who just hit 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 and or they take so many ground balls or or things like that is it kind of the more the merrier type of a deal when you're trying to develop a skill or is there a time where maybe you're actually getting worse by doing too much
1: yeah i don't know i guess again uh, you know i think it depends on what your goals are you know the 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 phrase that you might hear in in, in a skill acquisition research is it's tribute to this this researcher, Nikolai Bernstein, um, is called repetition without repetition. So the idea is to get you to do the same thing, but not in the same way. So fielding ground balls, you know, giving you different angles, different speeds, different situations to field it, I think is really valuable. Getting you do the exact same movement over and over again is not as valuable, I see it. We want that adaptability, flexibility in your movement. Rather than trying to produce the same movement every time, so, but I think there there's definitely a limit to how valuable that can be. You know, I, I know I think it's it's up to the player again. That's probably getting into a confidence type of thing. Too. Sure.
0: What uh what have you been researching late, lately?
1: So yeah, so the 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 biggest thing I've been I've been doing a couple things is um, with respect to baseball. One is the one that I mentioned, trying to directly compare um, different. Kind of coaching techniques, whether it's kind of verbal instruction, uh, internal versus external uh, constraints, um, this this thing called differential learning. So there's not many much research there co- directly comparing these and how, how they well they work. So so that's one thing I'm working on. Um, another thing I'm working on is trying to understand how batters kind of use and combine the different you know pieces of information they have about a pitch. So you know when when you go up to the to you know a, a, pitch, for a certain pitch, you have you know expectation about what the the pitch is going to be based on the count and the pitcher's tendencies. Then you can pick up information from the delivery, the release point. Then you can pick up information when the actual ball starts moving from its flight and things. So trying to understand how batters put those things all together is is something I've been working on recently. Yeah.
0: Uh, going back to when you're talking about uh, the coaching. So would that be fall into the category of being a coach who yells a lot and then a coach who's just really calm and quiet?
1: Um, the the instruction? Yeah. I, I yeah. haven't really, I guess, no, it's more ones that give very explicit instruction. Okay. You need, when you swing, if you want to hit a, you know, a ball in the air, you need to lift your leg like this and turn okay. like that versus one that's uh, kind of more hands off and says, okay, I want you to hit it over that fence. I don't care how you do it. You know, I'm not going to tell you how to move your body to achieve it. Yeah.
0: So right now, there's no um, better way from what you found so far.
1: Um, so far, I've, I've, you know, my work, I've found that letting people come up with their own solution can is better from what I've seen. Um, that doesn't mean you stand off and do nothing. You have to kind of step in and and guide that process, but. For me, I, I'm seeing better results um, when I when batters do that uh, than when I give them really uh, try to give them explicit instructions about how to hit. Definitely,
0: Rob, you've been an outstanding uh, guest. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, uh, dropping some great, great knowledge. Make sure to go check him out. He hosts the Perception and Action podcast. Um, I was listening to that last night and just you I, I felt like you were so over my head I was a little bit nervous you coming on today I'm like man I hope I understand half the stuff he says like <laughs> well hope you did <laughs> oh no I did what I mean like yeah. I mean you you really get into it and if you're you know really obsessed with learning and and skill acquisition and just everything um, go check them out again Rob really appreciate you coming on um, I enjoy learning so much I'm going to continue to, to binge listen to your podcast we got a lot of bus rides coming up so i, I like, I like <laughs> listening to them
1: yes yes i found that's so good for coaches yeah yeah it was my pleasure thanks very much for having me on patrick